0: Okay, here we go. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to dive right in to an amazing Torah portion that we just finished reading yesterday, and it is amazing. And it has a lot to do with everyone's favorite topic. What's everyone's favorite topic? Anyone? No, not that spiritual. Oh that, did I did you come to my other class where I said that same line and meant something else? What are you doing in this class? <laughs> so the the correct answer is yourself is everyone's favorite favorite topic, but second favorite topic. Come on, guys. What most people are interested in. Most people. It sells the most. Everyone's looking for it in all the wrong places. Dating and marriage. Love. We're going to talk about love. Straight from the Torah portion. This week's Torah portion, we learn about the first... Well, not really the first, but we learn about the first dating process between Yitzchak and Rivka, Isaac and Rebecca, And we're going to learn about that. Um, first, I want to just start with, we were on the theme of last week, talking about the prophecies unfolding. So in this week's Torah portion, Parshas Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, we learn about actually the death of Sarah. And that's, that's a big question, uh, why it's called the life of Sarah, and it talks about her death. And then we discover Avraham, we learn about Avraham buying the first acquisition of land in Israel, the first purchase of land by the Jewish people in the land of Israel, and that was the what is known as Maris Hamakpela, the cave of Makpela, the double cave, and it is in the city of Hebron. Anyone ever been to Hebron? Hebron is a, one of the four holiest cities in Israel. And Avram purchased, purchased the cave known as the Maras Hamachpelah, the cave of Machpela, which means the double cave in order to bury Sarah. And it is there that Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov are buried together with their wives, Sarah, Rifcha, and Leah, Rachel, and who is another wife of Yaakov, is buried someplace else in a place called Kever Rachel, which is also a very special place in Israel. And also legend has it that Adam and Eve are also buried there, according to Jewish tradition. So question is, why is it called the life of Sarah? We learn only about her death. And why is the first quintessential purchase of land in Israel the purchase of a burial cave? And from this pur- purchase of this cave, we learned something even more important. We learned the laws of marriage. Does anybody know why everyone in the whole world gets married with a ring? It's actually from Jewish law. Jewish law, marriage takes place with something that is akin to an acquisition that the the man has to actually give something of value, which Jewish tradition says is a ring, which symbolizes the circle of life and many other things symbolizing. We'll talk about more of the symbolism of that has to give something to the wife, essentially buying her rights to marry whoever she chooses. She gives away her right to marry anyone else. She essentially gives over her choice of who she gets to marry to her husband. And that is the, the acquisition which takes place with a ring, which actually now the whole world does because of Jewish law. And where does Jewish law learn that marriage takes place with an acquisition of giving something of value? From this week's Torah portion. Where? From the fact that Avraham buys a burial cave to mar- to bury his wife Sarah in from the language that's used in the acquisition of the cave we see the same language when it talks about marriage in the Torah and from there the Talmud says that marriage also requires an acquisition which could take place with money now how romantic is that the whole marriage laws are learned from burying, buying a cave to bury somebody in isn't that cute isn't that so romantic wait a second What is going on here? Why in the world are we learning marriage laws from buying a burial cave? What's the connection between death and marriage? You can make a lot of jokes there, by the way. But we're not going to go there because we value marriage. Okay, so next, immediately after this story, Avram decides that it's time to find a wife for his son, Yitzchak and there's also some interesting Kabbalistic questions of why now why right now did he decide it was time to marry off his son why didn't he do it last week or two weeks ago why only in this week's Parsha after Sarah passes away does he decide it's time to find a wife for Yitzchak and he, t- his servant whose name was Eliezer he comes and he tells him to swear that he will go away from the land of Israel, away from the land of Canaan to find a wife for his son from the place where Avram himself came from, from his own family. He says, I want you to go find someone from my relatives in the land of, of, uh, of Padan Aram, which is in like Syria or Turkey. That's where I want you to go. And he makes his, his servants swear And how does he make him swear? So he says, hold on to my, underneath my thigh. Put your hand under my thigh. And the commentaries discuss what he actually meant by put your hand under my thigh. What's under one's thigh? You guessed it. That's a really weird way to make an oath. He says, hold on to my bris. Remember the bris we learned about last week? We talked about the idea of circumcision. So he says, hold on to my circumcision, basically, and make an oath. So the commentaries explain, simply put, it's just like people, when they make an oath, they hold on to like a Bible to hold on to something holy to make an oath. So this was the holiest thing that existed at that time. This was the first mitzvah. This was the first piece of the physical world that was turned into, into spirituality. But it sounds a little bit strange, right? Like. I mean, <laughs> if someone asks you to do that, like, run, <laughs> okay? But what's going on there? Why did Avraham ask his servant to hold on specifically to that part of his body when he made this oath of going to find a wife for Yitzchak? And then Eliezer arrives at the town that he was going, and he says a prayer. And he says, any woman, whoever comes out to the well, he stood by the well, and he says, whoever comes out to the well... If I ask them for a drink and they say, yes, you can have a drink and I'll give water to your camels, that's the one. She's the one I've been looking for for my master. And the question is why? How does that? How is that his way of knowing that she's the right one? And it actually happens just like that. Rivka comes out and he sees her and he says um, – can I have a drink? She says, yes, of course you can have a drink and I'll feed your camels and she starts filling up water for camels. Camels drink a tremendous amount of water so it's like a whole big affair to feed his camels, to water his camels and then she invites him back to his house and he finds out that she's actually the the niece of Avraham and history is made at that moment. He gives her um, uh, jewelry which is includes... Um, Bracelets and nose rings, which was uh, a Jewish thing at the time, and and they uh, she ends up going back back with him and marrying Yitzchak. Okay, so that's basically the story of the part of the Torah portion. Um, the parsha ends just continuing the theme from last week. The parsha ends talking about Yeshmal. It actually starts with the death of Sarah and it ends with the death of Avraham, and it says that Avraham passes away. At a, at a ripe old age and um, he's buried by his sons Yitzchak and Yeshmal. and we see from the order that the Torah says that he was buried by Yitzchak and Yishmol as opposed to Yishmol and Yitzchak Yishmol was older if you recall so we see from that that Yishmol actually did shuva he repented and that's a si- sign that many say that in the end of time Yishmol which is the father of the Arab nations May, may possibly also including Persia will repent, will come back to God, and will embrace the Jewish people as as cousins, as brothers, once again. So we hope that that happens speedily in our time. Many thought that the Abraham Accords was the beginning of that process, but the end of the parsha ends going through the different princes who are descended from Yishmael. Yishmael has twelve princes, twelve children, and it says that that they dwelt. From in Assyria, all the which is near and and, uh, near to Egypt, towards Assyria, and over all his brothers, he dwelt or literally, or he fell. And the uh, one of the great Kabbalistic masters from here says over a thousand years ago that from here we see that when Yishmal falls, when the princes of Yishmal, when the Arab nations fall, meaning they are defeated, then the Messianic era begins, as next week's Parsha says these are the offspring of Yitzchak, and Yitzchak is the father of the Jewish people, and that refers to the Messianic era. Okay, but anyway, going back to our Parsha. So, what is the idea of marriage? What is that all about? So, let's Let's uh, talk about the first marriage in the Torah. What's the first marriage in the Torah? Who's the first couple in the Torah? Adam and Eve. So let's talk about the marriage of Adam and Eve. And from here we'll learn the concept of soulmates. Who, Who were Adam and Eve? So often... Uh many people have heard the Torah story uh quoted maybe translated in English maybe they heard it from the Christian Bible how was Eve created Right you often hear that she was created from Adam's rib and it and actually the Torah kind of says that but the truth is is that the Talmud interprets it quite differently it says that the word rib it doesn't actually mean rib. It means side. And what's the significance of that? So the Talmud addresses a verse in the Torah. It says that God created Adam and Eve, male and female. Um, he created them. And the Talmud says that Adam and Eve, that were actually, that Adam, God created Adam. It says like this. Sorry, I quoted the verse wrong. It says, God created Adam, male and female, he created them. So what does Adam mean? People often think Adam means male and Eve is female. But Adam actually means human. And it says that God created Adam, male and female. And from this, the Talmud says, and this is referring to before the creation of Eve. From this, the Talmud says that Adam was actually a human being prototype that was both male and female. That Adam and Eve were actually one being that were created back to back. One side was male and the other side was female. One being possessing both male and female. And then God split them apart into two separate beings. So, why did he do this? Why did God split Adam and Eve apart? And what's the mission of Adam and Eve? What's their goal? So the Torah says that God said to Adam, again, this is the male-female being, lo tov Adam Levado It's not good for human to be alone. I will make an Azer Kinegdo. I will make a helper opposite you, and hence the creation of Eve as a separate entity. So, what is what is God saying? The reason for creating male and female as separate beings. And just, just to give you a little more um, perspective, it says, and therefore, a person will leave their parent's house and cling to their spouse. The male and female will cling to each other to become kabbaser echad, to become like one flesh. So does anyone have any questions or, uh, or ideas to share about what the meaning of that? Creation and separation might be. Again, male and female created together. God says it's not good that man is created alone. I will make a helper opposite him. And therefore, a a man will leave his his parents' house and cling to his wife and become like one flesh. What are the questions you might want to know? What seems redundant? Yeah, they were one before. What's the point of separating them and then telling them, go back together and become one? Great, what else? Why did God do it in the first place? What does God tell us about the reason he did it? What does it say in the verse? No, it doesn't say that explicitly here. That is one of the reasons. We can learn a lot from that. To not be lonely, it says no it's not good for man to be alone. What's weird about that? Was man alone? Was the first Adam Adam alone? Besides God, what else did he have on his back? <laughs> he had a he. It was two in one. Was Adam really alone at that moment? There were they were a connected being that it, it consisted of two parts. Oh, so so essentially, we'll come back to that in a second, Michael. The, the message, I believe, is first of all, we learn an important concept about what it means to be good. God said it's not good for man to be alone. Definition of good, based on that, what's the definition of good? Togetherness, connection. And not only that, but what what is now possible when Adam and Eve are separate that was not possible when they were together? What's uniquely possible? Two coming together as opposed to being one. Okay, they could have the choice, good. They have free choice whether or not to connect or not. And what else is now possible when two come together who are separate? Okay, they can reconnect and and return to each other. And and there's one other advantage to, to being Two. The, let's, let's take a step back the, the Talmud and, and Kabbalah teaches us that the story of life, the story of the universe is the story of God going from a state of infinite oneness to a world of multiplicity and before there was a world, all there was was God. God was infinite oneness. Now, why would infinite oneness, perfection do anything? Why would an infinite being create a world? He wants to share it. Excellent. And from this, the Kabbalists they explain that in order to be good, You have to do good. That there was essentially something lacking, so to speak, in God's oneness before creation. And that was the ability to do good. In order to do good, what do you need there to be? What's a necessity? Yeah. Something other than yourself. Excellent. So God creates other, i.e. us in order to then share infinite goodness with us. So we see the exact same paradigm by Adam and Eve. They are created originally as one, split apart with the goal of coming back together, but now they can actually be good. In, when they were one, there was a state of not good. And now the goal is to actually be good. How can you be good? By doing good. How can you do good? By giving to another person. By doing goodness. So the exact same paradigm we have of God. God's creation. The story of creation is God is infinite oneness. Another way of referring to that infinite oneness. Right? Is when there are two ways of singing. We want to sing together. We can sing two different ways. One way is we both sing the exact same note. What do you call that? Unison. There's something called unison. And then there's another way of singing where we all sing different notes. What's that called? I mean, if we all sing good notes that sound good together. <laughs> Harmony. So when God, original existence was God, was existed in a state of unity. He was all there is, complete oneness. And then he split himself into a world of multiplicity, a world of disparity, of disconnection with the goal that we should come back and connect to him and reveal him in the world of harmony, meaning we're different, we're separate from him, and yet we are all lining up together in perfect balance to reveal that oneness. What's a greater revelation of oneness, unity or harmony? What sounds more beautiful? Everyone's singing the same note? Or everyone singing different notes, harmony, and that's the idea of like the messianic era that the entire world, as separate beings, separate from God, will come together in complete and perfect harmony, which will reveal the oneness of God on all the different levels, even in the darkest places, even the most physical reality. So, essentially, the mission of Adam is to be disconnected from his source, both in the metaphor and in reality. We're disconnected from God in order to reconnect from God. So too Adam and Eve are originally one soul, as Michael said, that are then split apart, thrown into a world of separation, of disconnection, of loneliness. And then they have to come back together as one. But in this coming back together as one now, it's a greater level of unity, a greater level level of oneness. Because now they're different, and yet they're choosing to bridge the gaps between their differences and become one. You know, I, I often say that the idea of peace, the idea of shalom, what does shalom mean? Anyone familiar with the the word shalom? Ah, so it's usually translated as peace, but it doesn't really mean peace. It means completion. The concept of shalom exists. where, Where are you experiencing the most peace? With someone who's just like you or someone who's totally not like you? If you think about it, right, are you experiencing a state of shalom completion with your best friend? Or would you experience an experience of shalom, of peace, when you take the person who you hate the most in life and you actually make it work? The idea of shalom is when opposites come together as one. When we bridge the differences and we choose to come together despite the fact that we are intrinsically opposite. Shalom is the exact opposite of John Lennon's vision of world peace. What's John Lennon's vision of world peace? Familiar with the song, Imagine? No religions, no countries. You may say I'm a dreamer. And you're right, you are a dreamer. Because that is not only not possible, that's totalitarianism or communism, Those of you who have come from family, come from the former Soviet Union, can ask them if that worked, right? It's not only uh, not possible, but it's actually wrong. That's not the purpose of this world. The purpose of the world is to have countries, to have religions, to have differences, different colors, different shapes, different aspirations, and yet to come together despite our differences. That's the Jewish vision of world peace. That's the messianic era. Not everyone has to be Jewish. Not everyone has to be the same. Everyone has to work towards the same goal of connection to God and revealing God in the world. So that's the exact idea of marriage. Marriage, God says, is I will make for you an azer konegdo, which means a helper who is opposite you. The idea of marriage is that which is opposite from you. That which is different from you to nonetheless, despite the differences of male-female, we don't think alike, we don't feel alike, we don't look alike. And yet, if we can learn to to get together and actually live in harmony, we can actually reveal the greatest revelation of God that's possible in this world when two come together as one. So that is the idea of soulmate. And now let's go back to this week's Torah portion. So first of all, why does Avraham make his servant Eliezer swear by holding his bris? So as we mentioned last week, what's the message of the bris of the circumcision? Anyone? Anyone? The idea of circumcision, yeah, Lionel. It's taking spirituality and bringing it to physicality. The place—it's the most physical part of the body—that's where we're going to have our relationship with God. It's the unification of spiritual and physical, and not only that, but it's the place that has the potential to be the most godlike. Why? Why is that part of the body the most godlike? Creation. It actually brings a soul into the world, and we take. So he says that place that symbolizes the the progenity, the future generations of the Jewish people. That's a simple explanation, by the way. Simple explanation is that that's that symbolizes continuity. I want my pact to be with all your generations, Abraham. But on a deeper level, it's saying that place that connects spirituality and physicality, that's the whole idea of soulmates, two coming together. And in in Kabbalah, the female element represents the earth, Mother Earth. The male represents drawing down spirituality from the higher realm and passing it over to the feminine, which then takes that energy and internalizes it and creates. That's the... That's the duality between male and female. Male draws down, female receives in, and then gives back and creates something even greater than the sum of the parts. So male without female is nothing. And the truth is female without male is nothing. They need each other. Both aspects need to come together. So so he says, take this place that represents the coming together of spirituality and physicality and bring together a soulmate for my son, for Yitzchak. And Eliezer goes off and he says this prayer. He says, whoever comes and offers to to feed my camels, that's the one. That's the right one. So how does he know that's the right one? So if we, when we learn a little bit about Kabbalah, we might have mentioned this previously. There are different energy types, different personality types. So Avraham, we might have mentioned, Avraham's core personality type is something known as chesed. Are you guys familiar? Do you remember did we talk about these concepts, chesed and and gevorah? Chesed is kindness and gevorah is strength. Do you remember which is masculine and which is feminine? Kindness or strength? Masculine or feminine? So most people say you guys are shy today most people say Kindness is feminine, strength is masculine, and we mentioned that in Kabbalah it's always the opposite. It's always the opposite of what you would think. We're actually looking at energies, directions. The energy of masculinity in Kabbalah refers to that which goes beyond. The male job in procreation is to go outside of himself and give a spark of seed To the female, the female energy is receiving that spark and bringing it in. So the energy of kindness is going beyond expansion. The energy of strength is going within, internalizing and receiving. So Avraham's core personality type was chesed. His whole life was giving. Expansion. His tent was open on all four sides. He spent his whole life crossing over from different borders and boundaries to different countries. He was called the Ivri, the one from over there, because his whole life he's crossing over rivers and and separations, open borders, open boundaries. We talked about the liberal personality type, free everything, no borders, no boundaries, no rules and regulations. Just give everything to everyone, equality. And then Yitzchak, his son, is the opposite personality type Yitzchak is called the Gevurah personality type, strength Yitzchak spends his whole life in the land of Israel he never leaves the borders of Israel his entire life in fact Avram makes Eliezer swear he will not bring Yitzchak out of the land of Israel he represents self-control strength, receiving and therefore so Avram who is a kindness personality has to find – we'll, I think we'll talk more about this another week. But he has to find – his wife, Sarah, is what type of personality? What attracts? Opposites. true opposites don't necessarily attract, but opposites become one. Oftentimes, people are attracted to themselves. Usually, people are actually attracted to someone who's very similar to them. But opposites become one. Your soulmate is the opposite of you. So Sarah represents strength. Sarah is complete self-control. She's the one that's setting the borders and the boundaries in the relationship. She says, Yishmal out, Yitzchak in. She's telling Avraham what to do and where to go. Sarah represents strength. She's the limiter in that relationship. Yitzchak, on the other hand, is himself strength. So who does he have to marry? What type of personality type? Chesed, kindness personality type. So Eliezer sees this girl and she comes and she says, not only will I give you to drink, but I'll feed your camels. And she's going back and forth and schlepping water from the well and filling up all the troughs. And she's going back and forth and running like crazy. And he says, this is the one. This is the one from my master. So Rivka represents the chesed personality type. Now, in fact, the question that arises, I gave a class on this last year, actually. It was I think it's my most popular podcast. If you guys want to listen to any of the oldies but goodies of my of my classes, I have a podcast. And the most popular to date was from this week's Torah portion, and it was gender and Judaism. Is it static or fluidic? And I actually mentioned this particular question, which is why is it that, that Avram only decided to go find a, a wife for Yitzchak now after Sarah passed away? So the Talmud explains to us that why did Sarah pass away now suddenly? It says because she heard about the Akedah, the binding of Yitzchak, where Yitzchak, Avram went to slaughter his son. It didn't actually happen. We talked about it last week. And she literally, she didn't hear the end of the story where he didn't actually slaughter her son and her soul left her. It was such a panic that her soul left her. And the Kabbalists explain that really what happened at that moment when Avraham slaughtered Yitzchak is that Yitzchak spiritually became slaughtered, that Yitzchak actually was killed. Why is that significant? Because it says that Yitzchak was actually born with a female soul. That's related to the idea we just talked about, that he had a soul of Gevura, which is from the feminine side in Kabbalah, a strength soul. But it says literally that because he had a female soul, he was not able to get married, he would never be able to have children because in order to have children, you have to have a male and female soul connecting, and it wasn't possible for him to have a soulmate. When he got slaughtered spiritually, he received a new soul, which now had masculine energy to it, even though it was still from the side of strength. He now had more of a masculine soul, and now he was able to get married finally after that. So for more on that, you can listen to the podcast about gender and Judaism. But um, concluding. So now, why is it that we learn the laws of marriage from buying a burial cave? It's very interesting. And that the first purchase of land in Israel is this purchase of this burial cave in Hebron. So what does Hebron mean? Literally, Hebron is a city, one of the four holy cities in Israel. It's actually in the Palestinian teri- territories. If you ever go pray at the the cave in Hebron, the Mars of Machpel, it's actually a mosque. It's uh, currently a mosque. It's a beautiful ancient structure that was built by Herod, one of the Jewish kings. But it is currently a mosque. Jews are allowed to pray in one half of the mosque of the site we're, we're allowed to go in. The other half is actually a mosque. You're not Jews are not allowed to go there. It's actually quite uh, interesting and in some ways scary, uh, in some ways beautiful. When you're praying there, you actually hear the Muslim call to prayer, and you can see, like through the wall, you can see – the Muslim worshippers on the other side. It's its its really phenomenal. Um, when I was there uh, about a year and a half ago, in the middle, we were praying the Mincha, afternoon prayer. In the middle of our prayer, suddenly they started chanting really loud and we started screaming our prayer so that we could hear it because theirs is very loud. And it was just like, I felt like a spiritual war going on, literally in that place, right? That place where we talked about last week, that debate between the Arabs and the Jews about who's the true son of, of Avraham. So, the name Chevron actually means it comes from the word chaver. You know what haver is? Chavrusa, chabura. It means it means a partner or a friend. A friend. The word Chevron literally means a place of connection. Place of connection. And the cave is called the Maris Hamakpela. The word Makpela comes from the Hebrew word kaful which means double. What English word comes from that word? Couple. The word couple is exactly that word. It's called the couple's cave. Why? Because in that cave is buried four couples. Adam and Eve, Avram and Sarah, Yitzhak and Rivka and Yaakov and Leah. It's literally the couple's cave. It's a cave of connection. The town is the place of connection. Because the whole idea of Hebron, it says in different Kabbalistic sources, is the place of connection between heaven and earth. Just like Jerusalem, the temple is a place where heaven and earth meet. Hebron is a place where earth and heaven meet. It's literally the opposite place of Jerusalem it's just it's the hidden Jerusalem uh, in some ways you might call it the, uh, the feminine version of Jerusalem it's a place where heaven and earth meet. it's a place of connection between body and soul between soulmates and it's the first purchase of a land of Israel of Hebron because Israel is much more than a physical place the state of Israel is not a state it's a state of mind and it's a place where heaven and earth meet. That's the whole idea of Israel is it's a place where spirituality and physicality can come together. It's literally the idea of marriage. And that's the mission of the Jewish people is to make a marriage between spirituality and physicality. Our job is not to become spiritual. Our job is to unite spirituality with physicality. We talked about last week. So this is exactly what israel symbolizes and why do we learn laws of marriage from the purchase of burial cave because we believe that marriage is not just a physical union it's a reconnecting of the other half of your soul in death so too as in life it's literally an eternal bond And that's the symbolism of the burial with the spouses together because it's not that they were just married in this world. They're married forever in the spiritual world as well. And that's the message. Every single Jewish marriage that we go through, and the whole world now does it, where they give a ring, is essentially saying this message that we are internally bond, like the symbolism of the circle, which is a union of wholeness, shalom, which means shalem, completion, is the ultimate goal. In this world, we achieved peace. But in the next world, we achieve true unity and wholeness because our souls are reunited as one. That the goal is not to be the same like John Lennon, communism, socialism, liberalism. Um, Sorry, didn't mean to say that. Um, The goal is that we should be different. That we should be different. By the way, the conservatives are just as guilty as this. The goal is we should be different, but that we should unite despite our differences. We should come together as one. And we should all be blessed to see. True unity in the world, actually true harmony in the world with all the different players in the story of what's going on in history should come together, that your small should return to uh, remembering his, his brotherhood that once existed with him in Yitzchak. And we should quickly see uh, world peace, not just world pieces, not pieces where there's a ceasefire, but actually peace, where the world finally comes together in recognition of our of our mission of revealing God in the world. Thank you so much for listening. Questions?